0: Welcome back Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl Gina and on every episode I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. I just want to let y'all know before we get started that I do appreciate each and every one of y'all. I've been so busy at work that I have not been able to record. And not to mention life has been lifing. And I know that's not a word, but it's going to be a Gina word. So yeah. So let's get started. I missed you. On March 13, 1964, while walking back to her apartment in the Kew Gardens district of Queens, New York, Kenny Genovese was brutally attacked and killed. For more than 30 minutes, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched while a man stalked and stabbed a woman in two separate attacks in Kew Gardens. These are the words the New York Times will release about the murder. The case of Kenny Genovese became a staple of psychological textbooks when discussing the bystander effect because it was publicized at the time that there were 38 witnesses to her murder, 37 of which did not call the police or do anything to help. This is Frank Doe, True Crime Podcast, and this is Echoes of Apathy, the Kitty Genovese Tragedy. Kitty was born Catherine Susan Genovese, better known as Kitty Genovese, on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, to her parents Rachel and Vincent Genovese. She was the oldest of five children, and her family resided in the Park Slope section of Brooklyn, a place well known of housing Italian and Irish families. Kitty was very popular in school and was voted class clown, She graduated in 1953 with remarkable grades in English and music. She was described by all who knew her as talkative, energetic, and strong. She was pretty much the life of the party. And everybody just wanted to be Kitty's friend. Shortly after her graduation in 1953, Kitty's mother witnessed a brutal murder and decided to move out of the city and into a more peaceful area in Connecticut. Kitty, since she had already graduated, she decided to stay behind and moved in with her grandparents and remained in the city. During her high school years, she dated a man named Anthony Fislola. Anthony was in college studying to be an engineer when they were dating, and he later joined the army as he worked as an officer and an engineer. So he was smart. The couple got married on October 31st, 1954. However, in 1956, they annulled their marriage, and afterwards, they never told anyone the reasons why they got divorced annulled. So after the divorce, Kitty moved into her own apartment in Brooklyn, where she worked as a secretary at an insurance company during the day and a bartender at night. She was arrested for taking bets from bar patrons for horse races and later fired. The infamous photo that you're gonna see if you Google her name is actually her mugshot from that arrest. So, after she was fired, she took a job as a bartender at Ebb's 11th Hour Bar in Queens and she was quickly promoted to manager. She moved to the area and started saving most of her money she earned in hopes of opening up her own Italian restaurant. So, in 1963, Kitty fell in love with a woman named Mary Ann Zalonka. Kitty and Marianne found a second floor apartment together in Kew Gardens in Queens, New York, which was considered a peaceful and safe area to live. However, sadly, exactly one year after the two had met for the first time on March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese, was brutally murdered in front of her apartment while supposedly more than 30 of her neighbors watched and did nothing. On March 13, 1964, at around 2.30 a.m., Kitty ended her shift at the bar and she got into her red Fiat to begin her 20-minute drive home. Unknowingly to her, someone was watching and started following her home. And that person's name, was Winston Mosley. Winston Mosley was a 29 year old black male, a father of five boys, two boys from his previous marriage, two boys from his current marriage, and one boy was his wife's Betty's little cousin who needed a home. Winston worked at the Ray Graham Corporation factory for about 10 years. Despite his dysfunctional parents and his upbringing, Winston had a pretty good life as a black man in the 1960s. His wife, Betty, was a third shift nurse in the emergency room and made $92 a week. I just wanted to give a little perspective to our healthcare workers who are listening today. Winston, he got paid $100 a week and gave $32 to his ex-wife in child support. He had his own home, two cars, one being a 1960 Colvair and the other a 1964 Ford Fairling for Betty. The house he lived in was a single family, two stories, six rooms, basement, and an attic. So yeah, Winston had a pretty good life. Most people would describe Winston as a kind, patient, quiet, a mild-mannered individual who was in control of his emotions and he was patient with his children. Occasionally, Betty would catch him in a room just staring at the walls, doing nothing. And when she asked him what was he doing, he would just say, thinking. So on March 13th, 1964, he left his home at about two o'clock a.m. and drove around looking for a woman to attack, to rape and kill, or kill and rape. Yep, you heard me, that's what he said he saw kitty leaving her job and getting into her car alone so he started following her he said that when she would stop he would stop he followed her all the way to the parking lot across the street from her apartment building he grabbed his hunting knife put stockings over his head that's what they did in the 60s they would put women's stockings over their head and just in case there are some millennials out there they did that to obstruct their features, so you wasn't able to describe them to the police later. Winston then got out of the car and waited for Kitty. Kitty didn't see him at first, but when she did, she also saw the knife and she began to run. Winston ran after Kitty and he caught up with her and stabbed her in the back. Kitty then screamed out, oh my God, he stabbed me, someone please help. And then she fell to the ground. It was 3.20 a.m. Winston Mosley, he then started looking around for a place where he can drag Kitty while she continued to scream. The first person shouted out of the window, shut the fuck up. Winston stabbed Kitty a few more times. Someone looked out of the window and hollered, what's going on down there? And that's when a whole bunch of lights started coming on in the building across the street and people started looking out of their windows. Kitty screamed again, if no one helps me, I'm going to die. Winston Mosley got scared because everybody started looking out of the window and he ran off and returned back to his car. He sat there for about 10 minutes, looking around realizing the police weren't coming. He didn't hear any doors opening and shut. He didn't hear nobody talking. So he realized no one was gonna help. While he was sitting there, he was looking, getting ready to pull off. He also saw Kitty pull herself off of the ground. She picked up her wallet, picked up her keys, and a couple of more items that was in her pockets and struggle walked her way to her apartment building. Kitty's wounds weren't deep to be fatal, but two had reached far enough to put punctures into each lobe of her lungs. While she was struggle walking, Air was slowly leaking into her chest cavities it was hard to breathe normally this walk would take less than a minute while walking she continued to scream out for help looking up at the building seeing people still looking down from their windows doing nothing oh my god this is so frustrating to even imagine a neighbor on the sixth floor said that he was about to call the police but didn't because his wife said not to assuming that someone else had already called the police but no one called the police despite the police two-minute response time at that time while struggle walking home kitty was trying every door she came upon she found an unlocked door at address 82-62 austin street it was the apartment building just before hers she opened the door and fell inside the foyer the hallway that's inside kitty screamed out to a friend of hers who lived there named carl ross calling his name carl it's kitty i've been stabbed now carl he heard the whole attack from the start and i guess the way these buildings are made He was able to climb out on the roof to the neighboring building. So he did just that. And he went over to a friend's apartment to tell them what was going on. Because by this time, everybody in the building was woke from her screaming. So Carl told that neighbor to call the police and he came back to the apartment. He said that he just thought it was a woman out there drunk or it was a couple that was fighting. So by the time Carl came back to his apartment, Kitty was in the hallway. So Kitty was in the hallway screaming for help. And Winston Mosley decided to get back out of the car since the police weren't coming. So instead of Winston keeping on the stockings that he had on over his face, he took those off and put on a fedora hat. So he got back out of the car and he started walking in the direction that Kitty was going in. And he started checking doors just like Kitty was. There's actually witnesses to all of this and spoiler alert, his confession as well so he came upon the unlocked door and what did he do what any of us would do we opened the door and there inside he saw kitty lying on the floor winston mosley entered the hallway and he closed the door behind him and there the second attack begun kitty was trying to fight him off all the while screaming for help she was screaming for carl to help her Winston Moseley stabbed Kitty in the throat to stop her from screaming and started to cut her clothes off. He stabbed her in the stomach and cut off one of her breasts. Carl, since he was back in his apartment, he heard all of the commotion going on in the hallway. He then opened the door and peeked out into the hallway. And it was at that moment that Carl Ross and Winston Moseley looked at each other in the eyes without saying a word. Carl quickly closed the door and locked it behind him, later saying in the report he just didn't want to get involved. Winston Mosley proceeded to molest Kitty in that hallway, later saying in his confession that he heard two to three doors open but knew no one would do anything, and sadly, he was right. Oh, Lord have mercy. All right, guys, it's going to get a little tough now. Winston ejaculated on Kitty's body and to add insult to injury, he robbed her of everything that she had left in her pockets. Her keys, a bottle of pills, makeup, one of her falsies, which he touched and he was afraid to leave fingerprints on it and $49. He said later in his confession, seeing the falsies angered him and that's why he cut off her right boob. This one is rough. So, after that, he took a knife and stuck it into Kitty's vagina and tried to pull straight up, but couldn't because of the bone. And then, Winston Moseley left and went home, but not before throwing everything that he stole out of Kitty's pockets onto the side of the road. But, remarkably, Kitty was still alive and was still trying to fight. One of the neighbors named Greta found Kitty laying in the foyer and she ran back to her apartment and she called Kitty's friend, Sophia Farah, who lived in the same building Kitty lived in with Marianne. And Sophia ran and found Kitty in the next building. She took Kitty into her arms and started constantly asking Kitty, who did this? But Kitty wasn't able to tell her anything. And then one person called the police it was 3 50 a.m at 4 20 a.m kitty died in the ambulance she never made it to the hospital police then went and told marianne they banged on the door until marianne answered the door and told marianne that she had to come down to the morgue to make an unofficial identification of kitty genovese since they weren't family later the family found out about it and since kitty Genevieve's dad couldn't identify her her uncle actually gave an official identification right off the bat they looked at Marianne as a suspect but instead of asking Marianne things about kitty and who could have done this to kitty they were more focused on their relationship and what they did in the bedroom and poor Marianne she was so young and so timid she was answering their questions all the while feeling dirty and knowing that this was wrong. After about six hours of this line of questioning to Marianne, they finally allowed her to go home. The police woke me up. They knocked on the door. Mm-hmm. They went down to the, the morgue, four o'clock in the morning. That's when I identified her. I remember sitting outside on the bench and they said, we're gonna take you home. I still know I'm gonna wait for her. Marianne is as devastated as anyone would be in any age or time. After the attack, friends of Kitty and Marianne abandoned Marianne now that she was a confirmed lesbian. Because before, Kitty and Marianne would tell people that they were just friends. They were scared because they were lesbians. And God forbid you fall in love with someone whom you want to fall in love with and not whom another person wants you to fall in love with because it's everybody's business and not your own's, right? Let's move on. So after the murder, Winston Mosley went back home and he went on about his, his life. So on March 18, 1964, Betty, his wife, caught him staring into space, something that he normally did. But this time he was late for work. So when she asked him what was going on, what's wrong, he just told her to call his boss and tell them that he'll be there soon. And by this time, him staring into space, now you late and you constantly having me call your boss, telling him that you're going to be late. You need to tell me what's going on so I can help you with these things so we can move on. But the only thing that he would reply was, just call my boss. It's none of your business. Just call my boss. And she was just like, no, fuck it. So he left out of the house and he never went to work. However, he was caught coming out of a house carrying a television set. And when two neighbors approached Winston Mosley and asked him what was going on or they were just looking at him and he just said, don't worry, I'm just helping them move. Now, these two neighbors, they didn't believe what Winston was saying. He went on and put the television into his car and he went back into the house. So when he went back into the house, the two neighbors, one took the distributor cap from his car up under his hood and the other one got on the phone and they called nine and they called the police. So when Winston got back to his car and tried to start it up, he realized it wasn't gonna start. So what Winston do? He just simply got out of the car and he started walking away whistling. Oh my God, I hate whistling. Oh, I hate whistling. But that ain't got nothing to do with the story, let's go. Police caught up with Winston Mosley around the block and was taken back to his car And when they saw the television in his car and other items in the trunk of his car, they simply asked Winston, were they stolen? And Winston answered, yes. Winston was arrested that day without incident or resistance. While at the police station, Winston Mosley didn't hesitate to admit to at least 30 other burglaries, including two that he had committed that day. It was 11 o'clock a.m. He also admitted to four serious assaults and two murders, Barbara Kralik and Anna Mae Johnson. The stabbing victim, Barbara Kralik, of 174-17 140th Street, Springfield Gardens, Queens, died in Queens General Hospital about 12 hours after having been stabbed six times during the early morning hours, July 20th, 1963, in the second floor bedroom of her home. Alvin L. Mitchell was a 19-year-old who was arrested, but later confessed to the murder, but he said that the only reason that he confessed to the murder, so the police would stop beating on him. Anna Mae Johnson was shot six times, two in the stomach and four in the back, right on her front porch when people would sleep upstairs, all because she lied to him and said no one was home. And there was a neighbor outside shoveling snow, but in his confession he said that he has no idea where that neighbor went. He then went upstairs and robbed a room of $100 and went back outside to Anna. When Winston Mosley saw that Anna was dead in the snow, he cut her clothes off so he can rape her right there outside in the snow, but he realized that it was too cold to do anything out in the snow. So what did he do? He drugged Anna Mae, lifeless body, up the porch stairs and into the living room and attempted to have intercourse with the lifeless body, but he was impudent. He then set the house on fire and he left leaving the people upstairs still asleep. (sighs) Winston Mosley actually took a scarf that Anna Mae Johnson was wearing, set it on fire, and placed it in between her legs and left. So when he was confessing to these murders, the police thought that he was just one of those guys who like to confess to murders for whatever reason. So when he confessed to Barbara's murder, they started asking him details about that murder. And he told them that she was shot. And they told him that, no, she was stabbed. And Winston started laughing at him a little bit and said, no, she was shot. So they asked about Anna May's and everything about Anna May's murder, everything he was saying about Anna Murray's murder kind of lined up so So while the confession was going on, the detectives, they was just looking at him and asking him questions. You know, just checking him out. They started realizing that he looked real close to the sketch of the person who killed Kitty Genovese. And they also noticed that he had a lot of scratches and cuts on his hands. And they accused him of killing Kitty Genovese. And he got quiet. And next thing you know, he blurted out, yeah, I killed her too. So on March 19, 1964, Winston Mosley was charged with homicide of Kenny Genovese and Anna Mae Johnson. He was also charged with illegal possession of a firearm and possession of pornography, which he stole from one of the houses he burglarized that day. Before charging Winston Mosley with Barbara Kralik's murder, they had to exhume the body. So on March 27, 1960, the New York Times came out with their paper with the headline "38 Witness a Death and No One Called the Police." So that just went into an uproar, and that just started everybody talking and criticizing New York about being real heartless if they can allow this to happen. Winston Mosley's trial began June 8, 1964, and was presided over by Judge J. Irvin Shapiro. Mosley initially pleaded not guilty, but his attorney later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. During his testimony, Winston described the event on the night that he murdered Kitty, along with the two other murders, to which he had confessed to and numerous other burglaries and rapes. The jury deliberated for seven hours before returning a guilty verdict at 10.30 p.m. on June 11. On June 15th, Winston Mosley was sentenced to death for the murder of Kenny Genovese when the jury foreman read the sentence. Winston showed no emotion, while some spectators applauded and cheered. Judge Shapiro added, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I would not hesitate to pull the switch myself. So on June 23, 1964, Winston Mosley appeared as a defense witness in the trial for Alvin Mitchell for the murder of Barbara Kralik. After being granted immunity from prosecution, he testified that he was the one that killed Barbara Kralik. The trial produced a hung jury, and 19-year-old Alvin Mitchell was still convicted of the murder of Barbara Kralik in his second trial, even though When they exhumed Barbara, they found a slug in her body from a gunshot wound that was missed in the first autopsy. And that really sucks. On June 1st, 1967, a New York court found that Winston Mosley should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentencing hearing when the trial court found that he had been legally insane and the sentence was reduced to life in prison. On March 18, 1968, Winston Mosley escaped from prison while being transported back from Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo, New York, where he had undergone a minor surgery for a self-inflicted injury. He hit the transporting correctional officer, stole his weapon, and fled to a nearby vacant house owned by Glen Island couple, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Kulaga, where he stayed undetected for three days. On March 21st, the Kulagas went to check on the house where they encountered Winston Mosley. He held them hostage for more than an hour, binding and gagging Matthew and raping Mrs. Kulaga, and then took the couple's car and fled. Winston Mosley then traveled to Grand Island when, on March 22nd, he broke into another house and held the woman and her daughter hostage for two hours before releasing them unharmed. He surrendered to police shortly afterwards and was charged with escape and kidnapping, to which he pled guilty. Winston Mosley was given two additional 15-year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. I'm going to continue to try to do positive and destructive things and to try to make up for those crimes. In September 1971, Winston Mosley participated in Attica's Prison Riot later that same decade he obtained a bachelor's in art and sociology in prison from Nigeria University okay so in April 1977 Winston Mosley he sent a long letter to the New York Times basically saying that he killed Genevieve by mistake sex was not the motive and just because you keep me in here and I'm living in perpetual agony it's not gonna bring kitty Genevieve's back so y'all should just let me out that's what he said He went on ABC's 2020, and he claimed that Kitty Genovese was throwing a lot of racial slurs to him, and that's why he killed her. But he must have forgot that he was in the police station telling the detectives everything. And he must have forgot that he also told the detectives that first two females that he killed were black, and he wanted to try and kill a white woman this time. That's what he said. He became eligible for parole in 1984. During his first parole hearing, he told the parole board that the notoriety he faced due to his crime made him a victim, stating, quote, for a victim outside, it's a one time, one hour, or one minute affair. Due to the person who's caught, it's forever. At the same hearing, Winston Mosley claimed that he never intended to kill Kitty Genovese and that he considered Kenny Genovese's murder to be a mugging because he said people kill people when they mug them sometimes. The board denied his request for parole. His court appointed attorney was Sydney Sparrow. That same attorney represented Kitty Genovese when she was arrested a year earlier. And later, Mosley tried to use that to get out of prison in 1995, saying that it was a conflict of interest. Winston Mosley returned to the parole hearing on March 13, 2008, the 44th anniversary of Kenny Genevieve's murder. He continued to show little remorse for Kitty Genevieve's murder, and the parole was again denied. Kitty's brother Vincent was unaware of the 2008 hearing until he was contacted by reporters for the New York Daily News. Vincent was reported to have never recovered from his sister's murder. He made a documentary called The Witness about her murder. It is so touching and you're just going to really feel for this 16-year-old boy. He was 16 when she died, and he said from that point on, he would make sure that he would never turn his back on anybody who may need help, the police or anything like that, and he went to the service. And I'm just paraphrasing, but that's one of the main reasons why he went to the service, to help people. And he, in this documentary, he talks to her old friends, the people that she used to work with, and then he retraces the steps that she took, and he hired an actress to do the screaming to try to emu- emulate the screaming, the way Kitty was could might have been screaming that night. I recommend you check that out. Winston Mosley was denied his 18th parole hearing in November 2015. He died in prison on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81 years old. And I truly, truly hope that he suffered every minute of the day that he lived his long, long life. He had served 52 years, making him one of the longest serving inmates in New York state prison system. Kitty Genovese is now buried in Lakeview Cemetery in New K9, Fairfield County, Connecticut. So, side note, let me tell you what happened to me a couple of Saturdays ago. It was like two or three weeks. It was two weeks ago. So, I decided to take my fur babies out for a walk. It was me, my 60-pound sweetheart, and my 15-pound little thug. Normally, on a Saturday and Sunday, if I don't take them to the dog park, I take them down this business street because there's no traffic, no businesses are open and I can take them off the leash so they can run around a little bit. So that's what we did. We walked down this business street and we get to the halfway point of the business street. Now this street is one way in and one way out and all the way at the end of the street, there's a gym tucked all the way in the back. Bear with me, all of this is gonna come together. So we're walking and I get to the middle of the street and I'm about to take them off the leash. So I look behind to see if I see any cars or anybody. And I just so happen to see a young man, 17 to 19 years old, speed walking up behind us. He was like about maybe two or three hundred yards away from us. And I didn't hear him or anything. So he had to have ran quietly or tried to sneak up on us some kind of way. But still, no alarms went off or anything. I just thought because he was in his shorts and had a hat or whatever, I just thought that he was going to the gym. So we changed directions and we're going in the opposite direction where we were coming from. We're like going back towards the opening of the street. And since he was going down that way, I'm like, okay, he'll be gone soon. I could take him over to this parking lot, take the fur babies off the leash so they can run around. So that's just what I did. But I happened to look in the reflection of the building, and I see he didn't turned around and started walking. So I'm like, oh, we're about to do this. I ain't had a fight in years. So I grabbed them, put them back on the leash, and I grabbed my weapon. So now we're going back towards the street and out of this parking lot because it looked to me for a moment that he was kind of like to trying to veer into the parking lot where we were. And what you're not going to do is close up no space and back me into a corner or building or something like that so I won't be able to have no place to go. So now he's walking. He's going towards my right, which is towards the opening of the street. He doesn't like that. I'm behind him now and I see he kept looking back. And while he was looking back, I noticed that his hat was pulled all the way down over his eyes. So that's when I realized I'm not tripping. His ass was about to try and start something and I don't understand who takes valuables with them when they walk in their dogs. The only thing that I had of value on me was my phone and maybe my car keys. So now my alarms is up. My spidey senses is going off. I'm ready to fight now. Let's go. So he doesn't like me following him because he doesn't have control of this situation. I do. So now we're all walking towards the opening of the street and I'm still following him. At the beginning of the street, I can turn left and I can go on home or I can turn right like he did and follow him now because he's playing this little follow the leader thing i didn't want to turn left and go home and he can follow me home so what i do i turn right with them but i didn't really follow him follow him but i stood there until he got a ways up the street so when i was about to turn around and the double time at home i happened to see he didn't turn around So I have to stop again. So I let him get in front of us again. Ultimately, I ended up walking him home. Now, I'm happy that nothing happened and I was able to get home safe and sound. But had he would have done something, this was my plan. I was going to spray him with my bear spray, which reaches up to 25 feet, and you don't need that much. Please don't ask me how, I know for a fact, but you don't need that much. I was gonna spray him and I knew my fur babies was gonna go wild. So had he would have gotten closer to me, they were gonna trip him with the leash. I was gonna spray him again. Once he get on the ground, I was gonna take that spray can and start beating him with it and then I was gonna rob him of his shoes and shorts. And I told a friend that and she laughed at me and said that I chose violence that day, but I didn't. And I know some of y'all are like, all right, Gina, just get to the point. And the point is this, Queens, we as women are being hunted out here. These people, I'm just going to say people because all of them aren't men, but these people are out here hunting us. They're looking at us like we are the weaker sex. Whether or not you're pro or anti-gun, arm yourself with something and I know you're sitting there somebody is out there and I hear you you're out there saying I got my mace on my keychain and that's fine and dandy but if you're like I am you're not getting too close to me for me to be able to spray you with this mace for it to be effective it's good in a pinch but when you spray somebody with mace, you're so close to them they can actually lunge forward and grab you and god forbid if they have a knife or something on them now you're fighting over a knife now you're fighting over their weapon and some women just aren't fighters and that's okay that's not me but that's okay That 25 feet with the bear spray can give you a head start on either running away or changing locations so you can beat them down or do whatever you choose. Ladies, arm yourself. When you're out there by yourself, you are your first responder. And three minutes is a long time when attack is happening. So since it happened, I really didn't think about it up until I started researching this particular story to bring to y'all because it really saddened me to think that no one called the police and that could be any one of us one of the excuses for someone not calling the police that night was he said that if she was out that late without a man then she deserves everything that she got if you're not leaving home early in the morning before the Sun comes up you're coming home late at night after the Sun comes down and ladies I just want y'all to arm yourselves with something, anything, just have it on your person at all time and don't be afraid to fight. I just don't want none of y'all to get got. This woman wasn't doing anything but walking home from her job. Who doesn't come home late at night from our jobs? and researching this story it was breaking my heart simply because when i start hearing the reasons why these people didn't call the police one person said that if she's out there that late by herself she deserved what she got and that just that almost made me cry somebody a few people were scared carl ross let's not forget about him he said he just didn't want to get involved the Kitty Genovese case stands as a poignant and haunting reminder of the importance of individual responsibility and the potential consequences of bystander apathy. While the circumstances surrounding her tragic death were deeply distressing, they also prompted a broader societal conversation about the need for collective action and empathy. Kitty Genovese's legacy is not solely one of sorrow, but also inspiration. Her story has compelled us to reevaluate our roles as members of the community, encouraging us to be vigilant and compassionate neighbors. As we reflect on this tragic chapter in history, we must strive to create a world where people are willing to lend a helping hand, ensuring that no one's cries for assistance ever go unanswered. In doing so, we honor Kitty Genovese. Her memory lives on as a call to action, urging us to be more empathetic and engage members of our community to prevent such heart-wrenching events from happening again. The Oakland Police Department is requesting assistance from our community and media partners in locating missing persons, Cheryl Lane, who is at risk due to age. She was last seen on April 5th, 2022 in the 3300 block of 13th Avenue around 1 PM. Cheryl was wearing a greenish blue shirt with blue pants. She left the area without her phone or shoes and drove away in the family vehicle. A gold 2018 Ford Edge. The dealer plates are California plates, A letter LWK205. Cheryl is described as a 62-year-old black female. She stands 5'9 and weighs 155 pounds. The family reports that she has dementia. If you have any knowledge or information regarding the whereabouts of Cheryl Lane, please notify the Oakland Police Department's Missing Persons Unit at 510-238-3641 or visit nixle.com. That's N-I-X-L-E. Com to receive Oakland Police Department alerts, advisories, and community messages or follow OPD on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Oakland Police CA. Let's help get Cheryl home to her family thank you for tuning in to yet another gripping episode of fried dough true crime if you would like to support this podcast please share it tell a friend or you can also give me a good review on whatever platform you're listening to me on right now remember you can stay in contact with the podcast on social media on ig and twitter at fried dough podcast i usually post visuals of each episode, maybe you want to see the person, and maybe I don't share no gore or crime scenes or anything like that. And then I also share the missing posters. If you have any case suggestions or you just want to reach out, you can always drop an email at frightdope at myyahoo.com, or you can leave a voice message, and that link is in the show notes, and it may show up on the next episode, and that's only if you want it to. Don't forget that all my resources are also located in the show notes, so be sure to check those out if you want more information, because it is still a lot of information about this case. And finally, 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 please stay safe, stay vigilant, When you're out of your car, stay vigilant when you're in your car. Stay in your rearview mirror. Always know what kind of car is behind you at all times and how long it's been behind you. If a car is behind you more than three lights, then switch a lane just to see. Just to see. And as always, not to be a Carl Ross. And always, always, always trust your instincts. Always trust your instincts.